We, oh. built, <laughs> we, built, we built a shrub, 500 feet tall, bright pink, and it smelled horrible. He didn't like it. <laughs> so we got canned. <laughs> you know, I heard you were big Napoleon Dynamite fan. Shut up. Maybe. Give me some of your thoughts. That That's the most overrated movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, some of the Psalms. We have the writings of the prophets and, and major and minor and all that. We have this Old Testament of these sacred writings. And then the apostles um, and the evangelists, uh, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin writing down the words and deeds of our Lord as the fullness of revelation. And then some of their communications, the, the letters to the churches, particularly by St. Paul, the Acts of the Apostles, those uh, events of the early church, also all get written down. So we have the church expressing what she knows, that what she was given from Christ, in two ways, Scripture and tradition. And both of these are equal, and both have divine protection, and uh, are, in one sense, the source of this fullness of revelation which comes in Christ. I think for me, as a um, as a convert, um, it was there was something very impactful for me in my my journey of faith when I realized that there was a real distinction between the Word of God, like a capital W, and then lowercase Word of God, um, because I guess uh, I always had considered the Word of God synonymous with the Bible, and so therefore, like Revelation itself is fully contained in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Rather than it being revelation is contained fully in a person in right. Jesus Christ, He's the Word, <laughs> and it's the Word of God, sacred Scripture that testifies to and and like that gives witness to the person of Jesus. Um, so that was that was that was really important for me because because I realized that revelation was. I don't want to sound like I don't want to sound dismissive of Scripture as someone that like first of all teaches sacred Scripture. I teach Old Testament or. And the fact that, like, I truly do love Scripture. Leo the Leo the Thirteenth called it a love letter from God the Father. Um, but Revelation is is greater than the collection of books because Revelation is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I also like too how you're mentioning like Scripture and tradition um, because it reminds me of this passage from Dave Verboom, uh, the Second Vatican Council's uh, Constitution on Divine Revelation, that they use the image of a stream. Uh, or of two streams that come from the same source, uh, where the source itself of, of Revelation is Christ, and the two streams that flow from it, um, the same water that mm-hmm. flows from it is Scripture and tradition. Yeah, they don't contradict each other. They, in one sense, they, they complement each other. Um, and to, to change the, the image from, from stream, which is uh, it's a good image uh, of itself, <clears throat> but if we can even think of uh, a stool... Right, having a three-legged stool, we have scripture and tradition as two legs, and then the third leg leg is actually the magisterium of the church. And what's that? The magisterium. It's the teaching authority of the church, right? In, in the hierarchy, that they entrusted to the hierarchy. Um, so you need the church to right. Well, the church comes out of a tradition, mm-hmm. right? So Christ founds a church historically. So there's a tradition of the church. So the church precedes temporally. The scripture, at least like the New Testament, even the writing of the New Testament, but even the collation of all the books of the Bible, the church precedes that. Um, so the church comes out of tradition, as it were, or she's born in history. She has that, that, that note. But she's also the one that determines what is inspired, right? Because that's what are we talking about when we talk about scripture? Scripture is a collection of books written under the inspiration of God and recognized as such by the church. Right. There are many books out there. I don't know if we did we talk about this last time. I, I think I've mentioned it, maybe not to you gentlemen, but I remember when I was uh, an undergrad um, studying at the University of Iowa, go Hawkeyes. Uh, I don't really mean that too sincerely. <laughs> <Right away. laughs> yeah, uh, Iowa, 
stands for, as I've been told by ne- Nebraskans, idiots out wandering around. Or, <laughs> alternatively, I owe the world an apology. I was just like a music man when I thought. Oh, you're yeah, a music man. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not quite, quite sure I could point Iowa out on a map. So... Actually, that's not it's, true. It's the head, yeah, it's the head is, of right? the shape of the, the man yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the Mississippi River. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I'm yeah. thinking about it, I do know where Iowa is. Yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, how <laughs> Iowa actually has that kind of rounded bump on the east, yeah. Yeah. on the eastern end. I'm from Davenport, which is under that, where actually the Mississippi runs west. It's such a big bend in the river. Yeah. And actually, in my town, if you go down to the river, the, the Mississippi, at certain times of the year, when the sun sets, you can actually. It looks like this. The river is flowing into the setting sun. It's really oh, quite, cool. awesome. quite amazing. It's yeah. really cool. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be from from Davenport, Iowa. It's, yeah, it's a great place to be from. Better than North Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I don't know. Uh, that's all I know. But anyway, uh, well, to get back on track. So, um, what was the track? Well, the track was <laughs> well. Actually, we have two sides of the track, which is scripture. And right. Right. So, so the. But you asked me a question. Well, what I was asking specifically was, uh, like, what is the magisterium and what is the role What is the role of the magisterium in terms of, like, safeguarding scripture and tradition? Oh, right, right. So we have the three legs of the stool to mm-hmm. explain yes. the magisterium. And so the, the church is born, right, from Christ. He founds the church. As I think we mentioned before, Christ doesn't write anything. He doesn't mm-hmm. order anyone to, be write, to write anything. He tells the apostles to go and teach and to baptize, to go to, to give the word and to do. Um, but the scripture, um, that which was handed down, right, the, the Old Testament, which prophesied the coming of Christ and, and talks about that the fullness of revelation will come, and then what the apostles, um, oh, that's where, I, that's where I was. I was in Iowa. Sorry, I was in Iowa. I was an undergrad. I was in the University of Iowa. I was in the, the main library. I was on the, because the, I was studying philosophy at the time, and I had all these books, right, all these philosophy books. And they all claim to purport to have the truth to some degree, to some to something. I'm like, well, how do I know any of these are actually true? I do not have the wherewithal, the time, or the mental capacity to read them all. And many of them are contradictory. How do I know the truth? And then I often thought, too, like, if I have the Bible here in my hand, what makes this book different from those other that they all claim to have the truth? In order for me to believe the Bible as telling me God's revelation, that ultimate truth, I need an authoritative witness, an authoritative representative of God to say, this is his. Mm-hmm. And so in order to actually believe in the authority of the Bible, you actually need a, a church to give it that authority. Because it's not simply of my experience on the, the, what is it, the fifth floor of the, the main library at the University of Iowa. If you go back to the early church, there were other the other Gospels purporting to be divinely revealed. Right? You have the Gospel of Thomas. That's actually, we, we still have extant copies of. It's actually kind of nutty. Very nutty. Very nutty. I mean, I think, isn't it that one that... I think it's where Jesus makes uh, birds out of clay or mud. Right. And then he just, like, kills them afterwards. Or? Right, which is weird. But do they have a process for, like discrediting that or verifying that or well so usually this is really interesting because the church you know you have to remember as monsignor said that the church is writing um or the the sacred authors are writing their specific books at different time periods you know mark wrote his at a different time period than john did not too far off not too far off we're we're talking in a span of 60 years john dies about 90 80 uh paul is writing his various letters to the church in philippi or or 
Ephesus at different time periods, you know? And different circumstances. Exactly. Sometimes he's out and about, sometimes he's in prison. But the church did not think about, uh, did not really think the need, that there was a need to codify or uh, to announce as canon those books that they considered inspired until until there was an issue of, of heresy or schism in which other people were saying these books are inspired and some of these books are contradicting Revelation. Are contradicting when did that start happening? In well, it really is. I think the earliest it started with Marcion in Rome with about Marcion was third century, I think third century. Um, but then the church doesn't really feel the need until roughly the fourth century to say, to solemnly define at various local councils, like at at Carthage, for example, um, these are the books that we hold to be authoritative and inspired by God. And then the next time that that happens is in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation Mm. Council of Trent. So it comes out of a necessity of saying, we need to clarify which books are, are scripture. Now there's also certain parameters too, that the church uses to discern which books are inspired. So first of all, you have the Old Testament. Let's put the Old Testament on one side because the church has always considered the Old Testament or the books of the Old Covenant to be inspired. Um, and those books that have been contained from the Septuagint, um, and that has not necessarily been challenged. That was not necessarily challenged until the 16th century with Martin Luther. Um, but with the New Testament books, uh, some of the criteria that was used, I can give you I can give you three examples. One was that they were apostolic in origin. Either they were written by an apostle or they were written by a confrere of the apostle. Two was universal use. Is, is this specific text being used by the universal church at large, east, west, north, and south? And three, liturgical use. Is this scripture being read in the liturgy? And the liturgy was really in the, con- the context in which scripture was being proclaimed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, it wasn't Not just like a note passed from Aquila one apostle. Yeah, had like and people didn't have Bibles they could read either no, the, at the time. So, the scriptures yeah. had a specific function of being proclaimed solemnly at, right. at the liturgy for two functions. One, primarily as, as, a, as an offering to God, and two, for instruction. So, yeah. Right, so it's, it's important to recognize that First, public revelation is closed with the death of St. John. With the death of the last apostle, there's no more public revelation. right? So we're not going to have any new scripture. We're not going to have any new truths. We have the fullness of the deposit of faith. Somebody actually said there's, because in St. Paul's letters, there's actually a mention to, of another letter to the Corinthians, which we don't have. And so somebody said, well, if we found that, if we like dug around in the desert of of Jordan or something, and, and we in a cave we came across this letter of this supposed third letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Would it be scriptural? No, because it doesn't fulfill those requirements. Mm-hmm. It may have been written by Saint Paul, but it wouldn't necessarily be. It would not be inspired. Not even necessarily. It would categorically would not be inspired. We would not add it to the Bible because yeah. it doesn't fulfill those requirements. And there were certain books at the time, uh, certain letters that. Some churches, some local churches considered inspired, but in the end were not included, like uh, the first letter of St. Clement, which is a right. beautiful letter. It's wonderful. And in fact, it was being used by certain local churches. But as the church was coming to codify the, the list of scripture, um, scriptural texts, uh, Clement was not put in there. Uh, one of the reasons specifically was because it wasn't used in a widespread way. Uh, 
So, and yeah. Don't the churches, uh, different <clears throat> churches have different um, Bibles too. Like doesn't the Ethiopian church have, they have the book of Enoch in their Bible and it's not in the Roman. There are certain books that um, are, and Monsieur, you can come, like I might, I might be, <laughs> I, I do, I do have a little fancy of studying Eastern Christianity and sure. there, there are, there are certain books specifically in the Old Testament that um, that our Orthodox brothers and sisters uh, use, um, whether they're Oriental Orthodox or uh, Orthodox. Um, so the Book of Enoch is one. The Book of Jubilees is another that's used mm. in the Ethiopian Church. Um, there's a third and fourth Book of Maccabees that the Orthodox Church uses, and um, I've wrestled with how that would work if we were to, God willing, be unified. Uh, east and west with the Old Testament books, and that's just frankly above my pay grade right now. So uh, yeah, I was just I'm curious not, in terms of clarifying for people who don't know much about this sort yeah. of stuff is how you discern mm-hmm. what what books are legitimate and what aren't. The Old Testament specifically interesting because for Jews, uh, it wasn't until after Christianity that the Jewish people they changed their they well, changed the Old well, Testament. Well, not only did they take everything that was Hellenistic out of their scriptures, um, so they would disregard the Septuagint, but also uh, before then, the the Jewish people did not see a need to to create a canon of books either. Mm. So you had certain sects of Judaism that had certain books that they considered oh, inspired, but other other sects that didn't, and they were okay with that. They were totally okay with that. So, um, so uh, Monsignor, what I was wondering was perhaps. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about how Catholicism is not necessarily a religion of the book. Um, like, what is it? What is the uh, what is the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, and why would we reject that? Um, uh, and then after that, I, I would kind of like to talk about inspiration and inerrancy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I never really studied Protestant doctrine. I mean, I, the, the basis that I know is that they, um, and well, it's hard, right? Because every Protestant is a Pope unto himself. Yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's hard to, like that phrase. To, 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 to group, uh, them together. But one thing many Protestants would, um, uh, kind of unite around is the idea that it's the Bible and only the Bible. That's the only place of authority uh, that you would get, you know, uh, matters of faith and morals and religious teaching comes from a book. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is problematic, um, even by the book itself, right? Because a, how do you determine what books are in the book, right? Who determines that we've already kind of uh, talked about that. It's the church who preserves and safeguards and determines what's, what, what's books because right. The, Biblia, right, is the Greek plural of books. So it's or a library. Co- right. It's a collection of books. Um, it's not just one book. It's a collection of books written over many, many thousands of years by different authors. Uh, and it also, I, I should probably go get my, my Bible of where even St. Peter, I think it's in the second letter of St. Peter, says, this isn't easy to understand. Yeah. Right. It, it's it's you need an interpreter. Mm-hmm. Or if we think of the deacon Philip in the Acts of the Apostles, where the the unit, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah, it's like, how do I understand this? Well, you need somebody to tell you. Mm-hmm. Right. Even so, even the testimony of Scripture itself is like this isn't easy. It's not a 
clear to anyone, you know, A, you need the faith to understand it, and B, you need the church to interpret it for you. I, I really like what Peter Craig, uh, the Catholic philosopher, said one time. He said, Jesus is Jesus is not a polygamist. And what does he mean by that? Well, if, if Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, there can only really be one bride. Um, and you see the effects of sola scriptura in uh, Protestantism when 30,000 independent churches exist in the United States alone, each having their own, their own interpretation of scripture. Right. And what happens a lot, especially in smaller communities, is that if, if the pastor starts teaching something that a small group doesn't agree with or they get a new pastor, they'll even start their own church. And so um, I was just, well, I, was I just actually teaching. asked a, a Protestant in front of mine, and this was years and years ago, mm-hmm. uh, 25 years or, so, or more ago. Um, like, well, how, how do I know? Like if, if, if I'm reading this and I think it means one thing and you're reading the same thing and you think it means something else, how do we know who's right? And she says, well, the Holy Spirit will guide us. I'm like, yeah, but we're saying contradictory things mm-hmm. like either I'm right and you're wrong or you're right and I'm wrong or we're both wrong, but we both can't be right. right. And big, big things. That right. Are so like, like most really John six, exactly. Like it's, it's either the, either the Eucharist is the flesh of Christ or yeah. it isn't. There's, there's no halvesies here. Yeah especially mainstream Protestant churches. So like most, um, most Protestant churches that come directly from reformers, like the Lutheran church, Presbyterians that come from Calvin, um, they consider baptism to be necessary for salvation. Uh, Lutherans actually consider baptism one of their two sacraments that they have. Okay. A lot of non-denominational churches, which is a very popular right. trend right now, don't consider, don't, do not believe baptism is necessary for salvation, but baptism is that public witness to your personal confession of faith. And that's a huge deal. I, I, just so there's no, no, no confusion. Baptism is necessary for salvation. Baptism is, yes, 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 it is. Our Lord says, unless one is born of water and spirit, they cannot right. enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal because, and you can't just say, well, it's up to someone's interpretation right. because we're saying either this is necessary to get into heaven or it's not. So, so the, the, the books themselves, the, the, the words and meaning need an understanding, need an authoritative person mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. to say that this is how this is to be understood and no other. This is the truth. Which is the authority that Christ gives to the apostles in Matthew 28 when he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. He gives them the, the teaching authority to do so. Um, and then also just apostolic succession in general is, is, historical. I mean, you know, first of all, in the book of Acts, chapter one, you see Peter as the leader of the 11, because Judas kills himself, says, we need to appoint a successor for Judas. He could have said, like, nope, we're just going to, like, keep moving forward. But there was already an understanding of succession. And then you have, you know, people like uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the, the apostle, or Ignatius. Um, it's just, it, it's evident. And I was actually teaching class today, and we were talking about this subject. And I, I remember thinking to myself, and I think I mentioned in class, was like, how reassuring is it to know that I, it's not up to me to interpret scripture. Like, I mean, who has that kind of time? Yeah. I really? mean, like, I mean like, to actually read all through scripture. Yeah. And actually, you know, because, you know, many people are dealing with translations. Yeah. We don't have an autograph. Yeah. Right. We don't have the scriptures in the hand of the original human authors. Mm-hmm. Right, which maybe we should yeah. indicate first that that the scriptures, you know, back to my, um, you know, me and on the the library, you know, floor of, of the the building at university, 
one of the things that makes the Bible different from any other work of philosophy or any other book claiming to be revelation or truth is that, A, the church backs this book, but B, what she says about this book is that it's inspired, that it has God as its author. That's a huge thing. The author of this book is a different type of author. There's two authors of Holy Scripture, God, the Holy Ghost, and the human authors. So it's it's this inspiration, right? So, And we can say, um, what, what do we mean by inspira- inspired? One, it was God who moved the authors to write these books. Two, while the authors were writing, they were protected by God from all error. Three, they wrote only what God wished them to write. And four, if God wished them to write something which they did not or could not know, he had to reveal it to them. But this is not dictation. It's not like, you know, they were just scribes. They were like mechanical scribes. They were like, uh, you know, they were the best that God could get before the invention of, of computers and, and voicemail and things. They actually contributed something. This is a great mystery of, this is the, it's a fundamental mystery of our faith of how, how grace and human free will work together. And it's, it's played out here in the idea of inspiration. But the authors are inspired by God. They are guided by God to write down what he wants them to write, the way he wants them to, still being free to express themselves, but the truths that are inerrant. Yeah, I was wondering, perhaps, if we can just further clarify, because I'm glad you bring up this question of inerrancy. Um, What are the implications of that by saying that Scripture is inerrant? Do we mean that scripture? Well, first of all, it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Right. That's, that's, an, that's one of the most important things. Is yeah. that we trust it to communicate that which God wants to tell us. Yeah. About Himself. But do we about mean, us? Do we mean that like Scripture is inerrant only in certain cases like that that nope. matter for our salvation? Or and 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 what is? I will quote your your one of your favorite popes. He's one of my favorite popes, Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Yes, he is one of my favorites. It, he yeah. says it is absolutely wrong, and it is forbidden either to narrow inspiration to certain parts only of Scripture or to admit that the sacred writer has erred. The system of those who limit inspiration to matters of faith and morals cannot be tolerated. So what does that mean in terms of a... That's a great quote, first of all. Yeah, it is. But what is that? What is that a great quote. Great quote. Uh, well, she was canonized. God willing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but what does that mean in terms of how we read the Bible. Like, does that mean that we have to read it in a literal, and I don't mean like the literal sense of scripture, but like a literalistic way in which like, right. There's, there's, right. There's literal meaning. And then there's literalistic, right. Of taking everything only at face value. If we look at the patristic understanding and and interpretation of scripture, which I did a talk on actually years ago, I think when the the Latin mass community was still at St. Patrick's, I did it on the four senses of scripture uh, literal, you have to remind me what they are, literal, allegorical, uh, analogical, and tropological. Tropological, right. yeah. So, I mean, you always start with a literal, What right? does the last word mean? <laughs> tropological is... is eschatological, is it? No, there's... Uh, there's you, so, you have the literal sense, and then you have the... Uh, tropological is the moral sense. The moral sense. Mm-hmm. Mor- that's the moral okay. sense of it. Uh, ana- analogical and anagogical, right. uh, which is uh, the end... Well, that's that's, that's but, eschatology. Yeah, yeah. eschatological. Okay. Yeah, right. The end times of such things. Yeah. So, like fulfillment of things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But you always start with the literal sense of what does what do the words mean, mm-hmm. right? And what's the author intending? What is the author right? intending in this particular yeah. context? And so you can get into some sort of 
of what was it forum criticism of what 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 kind of book is this? Because mm-hmm. we have very different things. We have you know the Canticle of Canticles is poetry. It was a very different thing than say Saint Paul's letter. Um, but you have things that are similar. You have things in Daniel that are apocalyptic literature, like Saint John's Apocalypse or Revelation. Yeah. In that sense. You also have certain historical things, like in Kings and Chronicles, mm-hmm. um, and you have historical things like Acts of the Apostles. Or you have biographies with the Gospels. Right. Uh, the creation account is considered a cosmic myth, not in, not because it's mythological, but just the way it's being told is written in the style. Right, of, right. It's the style of, of, of telling. A, yeah, of a prehistory. And actually, I'm going through that with uh, the younger catechism group here at mm-hmm. the parish. We're actually using uh, Dr. Bergsma's uh, Bible, oh, Bible Basics like, for Catholics. It's a great book. And you know, the important thing, I, as I was telling the children, the most in, interesting question is not how, it's why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ask any two-year-old or hang out with any two-year-old for half an hour and count how many times they ask why. why. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the question, the, to point. answer how, you know, that's where we have the, the beauty of the empirical sciences. Right. Like, telling us that. But the why is something that the empirical sciences they cannot tell us answer. at all. You know, and so it's uh, actually a very personal question, right? Yeah. Because it talks. Yeah. Of, it's 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 a question of motive. It's a question of of purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you do that? Well, that, that's that's that actually the question of why is an asking for revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So. And it's more interesting because a revelation is of a person yeah. rather than a thing that creates or a thing that makes or a machine that works. I mean, you can take apart a watch and you can say, I know how. And to a, to a degree, you can take apart the universe and say, I know how this all fits together. I can't answer why it's here. I don't know why the watch <clears throat> does what it does because you have to ask the person to, who made it to reveal himself? Why did you do this? And really, that's the question of Genesis. That's the revelation of Genesis is God saying, this is why I did it this way. This is why I did it. So, and also to, to kind of get back to your question of like, what are those four senses really? Like, like because you have the literal sense, which we just went over. Mm-hmm. But the literal sense should lead, you know, uh, to to these spiritual senses, these three spiritual senses. So the analogical sense is like, how is this passage, how does this passage find its fulfillment in Christ and the church? Um, how, how is, how is the scripture passages in first and second Kings on the queen mother, uh, the relationship between the queen mother and the Davidic king related and find their fulfillment in Christ, who's the new king of the new Davidic kingdom and Mary's new queen mother. Then you have the anagogical sense, which is uh, the kind of the, the, the eschatological end is that what what does this scripture passage mean for us at the end of time, like or the end of my life, like like how how does this relate to the the last things? And then finally, you have the tropological or the moral sense is like how does this apply to my life right now? And and, and that's where the interpretation of scripture, you know, before because I said like it's quite a relief that I don't have to inter- interpret scripture. I mean, like like first of all, and you mentioned this in your homily on Sundays, like we really should read the scriptures every day. And at the end of the episode, I would like to talk about like just some practical tips from you, mm-hmm. Monsignor, like what to do with that. But when we do sit down, we are interpreting in terms of like when we do Lexio Divina or just a prayerful reading of the scriptures, it's like, what is, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me right now in my life reading these passages? And so that is a mode of interpretation, but we're always interpreting it 
under the church. If we're inter- well, the, the interpretation, I think, helps give you context, yeah. too. Because that, that's what reminded me of when you were saying the Protestants read the Bible as Scripture alone. It's like taking God's words out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, like people do to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about how Luther, Luther wanted to take the book of James out. Uh, he called it the Epistle of Straw. And remember, mm-hmm. the James is where it says faith without works is dead. That didn't jive with his theology, so so, it it must be wrong. Yeah. And also, Luther wanted to take out John chapter 6, verse 66. Not because of. 666? Not because of the numerical mark of the beast or whatever, but because that is after the bread of life discourse when Jesus says, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood multiple times. And then it says in 66, Many of his disciples left him never to return. This is a hard saying. This is a very hard saying. And, you know, like, the Protestant reformers started to reject the belief in the real presence of Christ in right. the Eucharist. And Jesus doesn't back up, back down on it. Sixty-seven, he said, he turns to Peter and says, "Are you going to go too?" Yeah, you know? it's like, yeah, just kind of an aside. That's like one of the most dynamic, I think, turns yeah. in recorded history. It's like I just imagining you know being there with the apostles and our Lord just kind of turns, like, "Are you guys going to leave me too?" Yeah, because like I'm not changing. You know, is that where they said, where, where are we supposed to go? Yeah. Then Peter says, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. Yeah. Where are we going to go? Yeah. We, we have, there is nothing but That's you. such an amazing moment. Yeah. I love, I love St. Peter. I, he's, I mean, his he's mouth is, yeah. his mouth is right and checks his body can't cash. Yeah. <laughs> he's always, he's shooting stuff off. He's but, like Abraham. Like he's, he's great because he's flawed, you know, and yeah, it's relatable yeah. and he's. Uh, and and the his character arc of following the two, yes. so that would be an interesting, not not necessarily a podcast. I mean, it would be an interesting podcast. It's just an interesting study or a way of reading scripture is just follow the character arc of of Peter and how he develops and, and yeah. what what the Spirit does in him and how how he transforms and um, he's yeah, he's an amazing. It's it's so great and it's so it's so revealing, especially if you think remember that Mark's gospel is Peter's preaching. So he's writing with Peter. And there's there's a lot of intimate things about Peter in Mark's gospel you don't get from the others, or maybe not in the same way, that are really embarrassing to Peter. But they're in there because Peter's like, oh, it's true. Mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I remember this in, in some of my scripture courses along the line somewhere, that if this was all made up right, by the apostles, like this is like some sort of fabrication, like anybody else making a fabricated thing would not put embarrassing things about themselves in it. Jordan B. Peterson said that. Yeah. He was doing his Bible study. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, he, he did a Bible study. He did a fantastic, as a side note, but he did a fantastic series on the uh, psychological effects of the Bible on Western civilization. It's a wow. great YouTube series. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really interesting. But one of his points was that, these are really flawed people. The main characters in these stories. And that's why I brought up Abraham. Right. Cause he makes a point about Abraham. Like, He's a flawed dude. There's a lot of flaws, yeah. And it's and it's not written in a they would write themselves more perfectly right. if it was just made up. They'd do better PR for themselves. Yeah. Like we yeah. all would. We always want to come across as the you know the our best selves. Yeah. Especially if it's gonna be recorded for posterity or yeah. or whatever. And, and there's there's also other um, there's other uh, ways we can look at like the historical reliability of the New Testament too in the Gospels, um, and just by using the tools that modern historic historians use to uh, gauge whether or not a particular document from history is authentic. I mean, 
just the the writing of the the landscape and the geography of the time period of the the Jewish culture of the time period. I mean, these were contemporaries who were writing these books, um, and then also you just have like the wide dissemination of multiple copies, which was quite unheard of um, for like for the ancient world. Like the fact, and this is how we actually developed into a book form and not scroll. It was because of the Christians. It was a this much easier way of of copying down. Uh, uh, passages from the letters or from the gospels at, at a quick pace. And so that's why we actually have so many copies of this. And I, maybe you know this statistic better than I, but I've heard that there is more historical evidence, right? Like actual historical evidence for the existence of our Lord than Julius Caesar. Oh, absolutely. I've heard that before. And, yeah. I'm gonna, and yeah, I can yeah. use the example of Plato's dialogues too. Um, there's very scant evidence from some of the ancient Greeks and all and, and ancient Romans. The closest document that we have, a, a, like a copy of, of a, a dialogue from Plato, um, I'm pretty sure is about a thousand years um, after. Wow! After Plato is supposed to have lived. Okay, but we actually have documents. We actually have copies of the Gospels. Oh, we're, and, we're talking sixty years. Right? No, not even that. Like ten. 15 years, wow. which for the ancient world is crazy, yeah. right. crazy, yeah. you know, um, that also lends credence to the historical reliability of them. Uh, I'm glad you, Monsieur, I just wanted to say, I'm glad you, we talked a little bit about inerrancy, um, because that was actually a big problem, uh, following, um, the second Vatican council's document, Dave Urban, which by the way, I mean, in my opinion, was probably one of the best documents that came out of Vatican. It was short. Um, I always encourage people. To <laughs> that's what makes it that's good. Why it's short. Uh, I, I, I feel like a true student. <laughs> I always encourage people to read Dave Erboom. Uh, it's actually one of the <clears throat> earlier documents that came out. It was overwhelmingly approved, and it it's just it sums things up very nicely for Revelation. Um, but there was a problem that some people interpreted um, that God wanted specific things put in the Bible specifically, quote-unquote, for the sake of our salvation, and those things are inerrant. So right. Only those things, yeah, the interpretation of that document yeah. and thus in, of Scripture is that the only thing inerrant, right, the only thing really reliable or truthful in the Gospels or, or in Scripture yeah. is that which is pertains to our salvation. So that that's, that's and that interpretation is what we would call limited inerrancy. Wait, that was in? No, no, no. no. no they they were interpreting the document that way because of the way mm-hmm. um, way the Latin <clears throat> is written. Actually, the Latin doesn't bear it out, but the the, the first English the English translation, the Abbot translation, don't read the Abbot. We say those murky so. language in the Second Vatican Council. <laughs> no, well, it, well it, not, it, actually, not in the actually, Latin in this case. No. It, it was a translation. Very clear. Yeah. And even in the footnote of the original text of the original Latin document, like this is how clear Dave Erben was of full inerrancy. People took the English translation, which was bad, which happens a lot with Vatican uh, documents, and then they said, the church believes in limited limited inerrancy now rather than full inerrancy. But if you look at the footnotes from Dave Erboom in the original Latin text, it references Augustine, it references mm-hmm. Leo the Thirteenth, it, rep- it references like four documents that affirm full oh, yeah. inerrancy. Because that's the opposite of yeah. what you just read from Leo yeah. the Thirteenth. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it was, a, it was an English translation that basically harm the promulgation of Dave Arabum's mm. actual truth. Yeah. Uh, and something that like really annoys me is that, um, so I know you've seen it, but, I, well. but actually, you know, uh, Brian Harrison, father Brian Harrison has done a, a great, um, uh, article on, 
on the, this exact thing about David. Oh, Berman. really? Yeah, I'm not sure if um, I'm not sure if the Saint Saint Paul Center for Biblical Theology okay. has republished it. I think they did in Letter in the Spirit. Yeah, but I know somebody. If it's not republishing Harrison's article, they also have an article in there about it. I think it's Harrison's though. And I think I can speak for Monsignor by saying everyone should go get the resources from the St. Paul Center for Biblical. Theology. It's a very, it's a very good. Uh, they're doing very good work. I, yeah. I do, I do recommend them highly. Um, uh, they're doing some really good, important, solid Catholic scholarly work. Mm -hmm. in That's great. Right. Um, but. Have you seen the movie Rudy, Stephen? Oh, oh yeah. Here we okay, go. Yeah. Notre Dame. Okay. No, listen, listen. <laughs> I gotta tell you this because this drives me Rudy. I bet him. So while Came I like school. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I never did. Um wait the shot wait. Sean Austin or actual Rudy? The actual Rudy. Oh, okay. Came to speak at my school when I was in grade school. So <laughs> I can ask you later how that was, but um <laughs> but in the scene when Sean Austin is, uh, I don't know if it's Austin, is it Aston? Aston. Sean Aston. Yeah. Samwise came at Samwise. When Samwise, <laughs> when Samwise Rudy is at Holy Cross College, and don't, he's, let me, don't let her turn anything unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. When Samwise is in his theology class at Holy Cross College, yeah, there's there's a, a priest. That is, um, and I think it's a real priest that, that they had fill in for this, who was teaching limited inerrancy, quoting Dave Verboom in the movie Rudy. Oh, wow. And so every time I, when I realized it, I can't, like, I love that movie, but I can't watch that scene anymore because I'm like, no, like, that's not what it is. <laughs> it is. But I'm so, sure that's probably what was being taught. Well, so it's yeah. historically accurate, even though it's Pay no attention to that, young hobbit. <laughs> Must never go there. <laughs> so, Monsignor, I'm wondering, uh, do you have maybe some practical tips or advice for uh, people listening on, like, like people that have uh, maybe they're they have mothballs and cobwebs on their Bible, but just like as Catholics, I, it, we should really take pride in the fact yeah. that it is our book. Like, what should we be doing? Well, the two things I recommend frequently are, uh, especially since we're the, the the Gospels themselves can be a little bit tricky to get into. Right? If you're going to go to the Gospels, don't start with John. Um, you start with Mark. It's the shortest. Mm -hmm. I, I usually recommend Luke. Luke is is, yeah. is, a, is a good teller. Yeah. Um, lots of things in Matthew. But yeah. but um, for kind of like real beginners, I actually recommend finding a good life of Christ, like mm -hmm. maybe by Fulton Sheen, something that puts it all in chronicle order. It reads like a story. Mm -hmm. So you get the gist of things down. Um, the other thing I would, uh, other source I would recommend is there's a little pocket New Testament that Scepter Press puts out. I'm not sure if somebody else yeah. publishes it. Yeah. But, but it's the whole New Testament, and it's actually broken up with dates on it. So you can actually read the whole New Testament in six months. And it gives you a date for the um, like the Gospels, and then, then from Acts to, to Revelation, it has another date. So you can just read a little bit each day. And that, that's very helpful, too, so it's, it's not too burdensome, and you can either go slowly over and pour over the actual words of our Lord and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a, it's a both-and thing, so you could, you could do both as your spiritual reading. Um, and I also think that getting a good commentary, a good Catholic solid commentary, if you want to get into um, that sort of, maybe, maybe is the next step, um, so that if you're, if you're getting to the point where you're doing your own kind of interpretation that trying to understand what's really there, you don't want to get let off, right? Because, you know, you can, if you're, if you're left to your own devices or you don't have other good instruction or formation. Um, so there are many resources out there. 
there's actually a whole uh, good Catholic, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, there's a whole series. Oh, the, uh, the, the Navarre Bible? No, 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 no. There's another one. The um, Navarre is good. The, the Navarre is good. Um, it, it's, it's got its own thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but though this one, it, it's, it's quite a long, actually the bishop is sending out volumes of it every year for Christmas as a gift to the priest. Oh, really? It was oh, very wow. nice. Um, and each, each volume. So like the gospel of Matthew, I think is done by Ed Sree. Oh, it do, does this have like an icon of Christ on the front of it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, the, the it's like like the Catholic yeah. biblical commentary yeah. or something like that. It, it's a it's a new one being put out. It's very accessible. It's very solid. Yeah. Um. So I would recommend getting something like that to to read with. I would also just like to uh, echo what Monsignor has said. Um. I always encourage people to just take five minutes a day and read a chapter from uh, particularly the New Testament, the Gospels. But just something from scripture, just take five minutes and then like carry that with you throughout the day where you're constantly being reminded of that. Right. Um, another great tool is just using your, your hand missile too. And Oh uh, yeah. That, 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 thank you for bringing that yeah, up because yeah. you know, you've got the scripture all in there. Like if, if you've got that, that pew missile, that hand missile, you know, read the scripture from the mass of the day, of the day. Yeah, you yeah. know, or, or, or just the Sunday, just repeat Sunday, even for that whole week. So you get really into Sunday or maybe do this. So read Monday to, um, wait, let's see how I don't want to do this. So do Wednesday to Saturday, read the upcoming Sunday. Mm-hmm. Right. And then prepare for it, prepare yeah. for Sunday. Yeah. So especially if, if the sermon's going to be on, on what you've been reading, all the better. Then you you, yeah. you understand more. You retain more, and then you know afterwards. Um, you know, so basically reading Thursday to Thursday, yeah, right. That that and putting Sunday in the middle uh, is a way to prepare, and then also to digest afterwards, so it sticks with you. And I I try and do that on Saturday, just because with like little kids, like it's so hard to focus during the liturgy. Um, but if I if I remember what what you are are praying at the altar, mm-hmm. I can, That's a good point. you know, or, or even just like, if you're really busy, just like, remember the introit from that Sunday's mass mm-hmm. or that, yeah. day, you know, uh, usually from the Psalms. Um, so I'm sure we can put in the show notes, um, perhaps links to some of oh, yeah, these, definitely. uh, bi- like pocket Bibles you can buy some of the commentaries that if you want something really studious, the Catena Aria of, of Thomas Aquinas, yeah, where he, he has all the... That's a different level. All yeah, day. so we, we can put some different levels. Yeah, so some Bibles It'll be too. much more fruitful than the descriptions that I put in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just make sure you choose a good Bible. I mean, one that's faithful in its uh, translation. Um, some people like uh, a more traditional language, like the Douay Reims, um, or... Uh, I, I find myself always going back to the, the Douay yeah, or Schellner. Or I think, like... For me, honestly, like for my classes, I tend to use the RSVCE, which tends to be pretty faithful. Um, yeah. But I always like to go back to the Douay to see what does the Douay say. And also that you can read something like the Knox Bible, right. uh, which is... Uh, There's also, um, I have upstairs, I like Oxford University put it out. Mm-hmm. You can actually get like a New Testament with, you know, four or five translations yeah. all together. So you can actually look at them side by side if, cool. you, if you wanted to do that. It's like Bible Hub. You ever go to Bible Hub? Uh, I usually use Bible Gateway to, nice. to search things. Can I also look, 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 look Bible? for uh, <laughs> Bible Hub? Has well, I mean, they're probably they probably do the same thing. They have different um, different translations, different translations, yeah. and then they also have the um, footnotes of everything too. Uh, 
you gotta be careful with the footnotes for like the RSVCE because <laughs> sometimes it gets like very historical critical in the negative sense where it's oh, like yeah. where it's like ah oh, man this is not yeah. you know, this is not jacking with me but um, yeah, yeah I, I haven't found like the the perfect translation that I like the last there's always some some little something something that I yeah. just I think with any translation yeah. this is a translation but the last book that I wanted to recommend that we have to put in the show notes mm-hmm. is um, Brant Petrie and John Bergsma. Uh, Dr. Bram Petrie and Dr. John Bergsma, uh, both both biblical theologians, Catholic, faithful Catholic theologians, have published a book called A Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's probably, it's in my opinion, the best single volume um, uh, book on the Old Testament out there. Yeah. And so what's great is that it, they go through every book of the Old Testament and um, it's very easy to read. Uh, it's great for priests too that have to preach on the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a big book. It's, it's 50 bucks or so or whatnot, but it's worth it. Um, mm-hmm. the old Testament tends to be more of a challenge for, for most Catholics because, um, because it's just something quite foreign to right. us. Um, but I think that if Catholics can, but if you, can, like if you this, can get into it, it's, it's so helpful, right? That, you know, the old Testament, it enlightens the New Testament or, yeah. or prophesies the New Testament and the New Testament enlightens the, the New old. Testament fulfills the old. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to see them all as, as part of a whole of Revelation, then you see it as, as you were mentioning before about, you know, like the Queen Mother in the Old Testament yeah. or say like the power of the keys. If you know that in the Old Testament, it's like, oh, because yeah. you really what you want to do is, is understand the Old Testament. But then when things happen in the Gospels, you're like, oh, yeah. I get it now. I see what the, the, the deeper meaning of this and how it's actually fulfilled. And if you're paying attention to the church's liturgical year, uh, we have our Ember Days coming up on Wednesday and Friday and Saturday. And the Ember Days, the scripture readings rely heavily on prophets. So that's also a really good yep. kind of start reading some of the Old Testament. So turn off the podcast and go read your Bible. <laughs>